in prayer. Let's do that. But uh, first, let's read through the chapter once. And as we read through the chapter, uh, just kind of get that feel for the kind of the, the length and the, the, the gravity of what's being said here, because this is a, I can't even tell you, well, I will, I'll tell you to some degree, why this chapter is so important, and especially why this is, in essence, the most important land purchase you will find in all of Scripture, uh, something to consider. No piece of land is more important, important than the one that David is going to buy here, and none is more argued over or fought over than this particular little chunk of land. So uh, read along with me, if you would, please. 2 Samuel chapter 24, our final chapter. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them. The word moved, by the way, little just precursor, is the word sut. And sut in the Hebrew means to prick or to prod. be the idea kind of to poke you once. Uh, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than they are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's words prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Notice it wasn't just Joab pushing it. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped at Aror on the right side of the town, which was in the midst of the ravine of Gad. And it's on the east side now beyond the Jordan, today's Jordan, and toward Yatzer. And they came to Gilead and came to the land of Tatim Hadshi. And they came to Dan Wan, uh, Dan Yoan, and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. They went through the south, Judah, as far as Beersheba, which is the southern tip of Israel. And when they had gone through the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. That's 1.3 million men in your army. Notice, by the way, they're listed as valiant men. Do you see that there? It's important to note, and I'll show you why later. David's heart then condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now oh, I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. Choose wisely. So Gad came to David and told him. And he said to him, Seven years, uh, shall seven years of famine come upon you on your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what, I, what answer I should take back to him who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of men. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning to the appointed time, from Dan to Beersheba, from the northern tip to the southern tip. 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it. The Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, 
the Yebushite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Yebushite. So David, according to the word of God, went up to the Lord as the Lord commanded. And Aruna looked and he saw the king and his servants coming <coughs> excuse me, toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Aruna said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Arona said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arona, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. Quite a deal. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings so the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Father, I pray that you would cause your word to burst open and just strike us where it needs to strike us, that our hearts would be laid bare, that we could hear you tonight, that we could know you tonight better. God, we don't want just to be informed. Lord, we want to encounter you and be transformed. We want, Lord, tonight the very thing that's in your heart. At this moment, our hearts crave what you crave, to be intimate, to be tight, to be close to you. And we thank you for saving us, for wanting us, for desiring us. So Lord, now have your way, we pray. Redeem every second. Do exactly what you want to do in this time. And Lord, I just pray that you would do a mighty, mighty work here. So Lord, you know how to speak fluent us. You know how for every person in this room to encounter you and for your, your word to penetrate our hearts, so do so, I pray. Have your way, Lord. We commit this time to you. Every moment of it is yours. And may we, Lord, be more equipped, more readied, and more solid in our faith in you. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Now, you may be aware of the fact that there is a list of account of the kings of Israel. And there is also a chronicle of the majority of the events that we sort of see, including this event in the books that we call the books of the Chronicles. But there is some additional information that we will get if we look there. Now, if you have your Bible with you, flip forward, you would be, you're at the Samuels, you would have the Samuels and then the Kings and then the Chronicles and flip to First Chronicles 21.
In First Chronicles 21, we'll have, and I will compare in a couple situations, but it says, and look at verse 1, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Now compare that to what we read in Second Samuel 24, where it tells us that God provoked the same word, by the way, sut, in both cases. So who is it who did it? The answer is both. Now that's where we have to start this. Somewhere in all of this, David is moved to do something that clearly is sinful. And it tells us that somehow in this, that there was some motivation done by God, and yet somehow it was done by Satan. And let me just start by saying this, because if you are the kind that's a student of the Bible, you're going to approach situations like this, and you have to reconcile them some way. God is so smart. He even knows how to use the enemy against the enemy. The end of this, the product of this, by the time it is done is going to be completely, entirely to the glory of God. Now we know there are more than one circumstances in Scripture where the enemy is seeking to do something and God in His benevolent and perfect understanding and wisdom steps into the situation and only allows the enemy a certain amount of room. For instance, in the story of Job. The reason I say that is nowhere in Scripture is there this attitude, this weird cavalier super attentive attitude to the enemy that we get in much of the churches in the, in the Western world today. If our God is truly sovereign, and clearly it does say that God is sovereign. He's in control. He knows what he's doing and he's in control. And if I really am to believe all of Scripture, which I do, which includes 1 John 5, where it says those who are born of God keep themselves and the wicked one doesn't touch them. It tells us that nothing that happens to us doesn't happen. Let me say, nothing that happens to us happens without God's permission. And the reason I say that is when something happens in your life and it gets weird, we want to go and blame the devil. And we want to yell at him and get in a conversation with him. But let me ask you, is there any place, classic example, where we're looking at Christians as an example, is there anywhere in Scripture, where in the book of Acts, where you see anyone get in a conversation with Satan because something rough happens? Now, that doesn't mean that Satan isn't involved. For instance, Paul would speak about visions in 2 Corinthians and then say, but because of the abundance of these revelations, a messenger of Satan was given to me. A messenger is the word angel. There was something to buffet me. There was a thorn in his flesh, for which, by the way, it does not say that Paul rebuked Satan, but it says Paul cried out to God. And he says, for which I pleaded with God on three occasions, and God's response is, my grace is sufficient. No, think about the doctrine we preach. If something weird happens to us, but we say that God loves us and that we're adopted and he's our father and he surrounds us with songs of deliverance and he's our fortress and our refuge and our rock and he's all of these great things that speak of our protection and our safety, but then we run around and tell everyone how Satan keeps it, somehow keeps sneaking past God to make our life miserable. Now, if I didn't know the Lord, what would I think by that kind of testimony? I'd say, well, this God that's protecting him isn't doing a fantastic job. And we get that way. Think it through. Because the world out there is looking for evidence on who this God really is. And we tell them he's everything we need, and then we act like he isn't. 
And if Jesus did say, and he did, that if we would come to him labored and heavy laden, he would give us rest. Well, then we need to come to him and receive his rest. Now, it tells us no good thing in Psalm 84, no good thing will God withhold from those who walk uprightly. And that all good gifts come from the Father of heavenly lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift, James 1 tells us. The problem is, who gets to define what a good thing is? A good gift. Could a sickness be a good gift? Well, let me ask you, could pain be a good gift? Well, if pain tells you something's not right, it's a good thing for you to get it handled. That absence of pain may actually keep you from dealing with an issue that needs to be dealt with in your body, for instance. And we kind of get this idea that God owes us a comfortable, stress-free, and I mean that in the sense of events, life where there's no tumult or no problems or no challenges. And if there are, clearly something's not right because clearly why would God allow that for his children? And yet, Jesus taught us at the end of Matthew 7 that there are going to be two groups of people that listen to what he has to say. There are going to be those who hear but don't do it. And there are going to be those who hear and act upon it. For those who hear and act upon it, it is like a person who builds their house upon the rock. For those who hear his word but don't act upon it, it's like those who build their house upon the sand. In both cases, they're building houses. In both cases, they're hearing him. But the difference is whether you're going to choose to do something with that information and make it your life or whether you're just going to hear the information and go back to building the way you want to. But what he tells us in both cases, it says the rains came, the floods rose, and the wind beat against the house. In both cases, the rains fall. In both cases, the floods rise. And in both cases, the wind beats against the house. That is not a variable. That is a given. As a matter of fact, if it wasn't for the rains... If it wasn't for the floods, if it wasn't for the winds, we really wouldn't know how well the house was built. But he tells us the difference is not the absence of the storms. The difference is the condition of the house. And he says, in the case of a person who hears but doesn't act upon his words, when the rains come, it's a problem. When the floods rise, it's a big problem. And when the winds beat, that whole house is going to fall. He goes, but in a Christian's life, one who listens to his words and acts upon them, the rains are going to fall, but they're no threat. The floods are going to rise, but they're no threat. And when the wind beats against the house, it's no threat because the house is established. And the reason I say that is, is that regardless of whether the enemy has any say, and that's what he does more than anything, is talk, and that's the idea here, is that he has spoken to David and David's been listening. And he has prompted David. He is, in essence, elicited, Hey, David, why don't you number the people? And the Lord has allowed it. But let me ask you, according to our text, back here in Second Samuel, who was God upset with according to the first verse? Israel, don't miss that. God has a punitive response. He has an action. He's going to have to take his kids to the woodshed. It doesn't say that God's angry at David. 
alone. David's part of Israel, so I could see him being part of this. But the point is, is that God, notice by the way, what's even more disturbing is the first word of the chapter. Again. Well, that tells us this wasn't the first time that these people had angered God. No, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. God now has at his disposable all kinds of options. But if David is already listening to the enemy, well, then it's going to be very simple. The question is, why was God angry at Israel? Well, clearly here and in First Chronicles, it doesn't say. But I will say a couple things. One, that it tells us in Second Chronicles 35 that during the time of Josiah, there was a Passover kept that was so good that it paled every other Passover since Joshua. It says, there has been no Passover like this in Israel since the days, I'm sorry, of Samuel the prophet. Now Samuel, of course, was before Saul, which tells us from that point unto thou until the days of Josiah, which by the way will be a few hundred years later, what's clear is there's really no attention like there should be. As a matter of fact, we'll see in, in essence the same thing in regards to the, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Of the three required feasts, clearly there was a neglect to the feasts. But also, for what it's worth, in Second Chronicles 36, 21, it tells us that there was a what's called an Eretz Shabbat, or if you will, a land Sabbath. Every seventh year in the farming communities in Israel, they were to let the land go follow. In other words, you don't farm every seventh year. You give it a year off. That allows, of course, the soil to replenish. It does a lot of really great things. To this day, they still are learning about how good that is. But for 490 years, Israel ignored that land Sabbath. And that that means, by the way, throughout the entirety of the time of the kings, Israel has been ignoring the idea of doing this thing, this disobedience for which God told them to. Now, I can't tell you what's any of those, but I can tell you these things were taking place during this time. But the most common thing that Israel has a problem, of course, with is running to idols, adopting the idols of the communities for which they were supposed to drive out. Listen, 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 beloved. As a Christian, you are placed in a community. We have this benefit here. I mean, I look around the room, and to be honest, every one of you, in one manner or another, could represent a country outside of England. And the reason I say that is, is when you came to this country, if you did, now maybe some of you, I know at least a couple of you were born and raised here, but there are still elements and qualities of your culture beyond England that make their way into this culture. Now, there are certainly people that come here and certainly communities, then they kind of lock in with other people. And you know this. You watch a person, a classic example, we would say like our friend, like, you, know, you, come from, you come from Italy, and in, in, in the beginning, I don't know how much English you spoke when you came, but you, know, you come in the beginning, it's, you, know, you, you look for a job. If you don't speak a lot of English, or an Italian restaurant's a good idea because that's one place you can speak with the staff. I have a friend named Marco, uh, and he is, he's a real sweetheart. He's a pastor. He's a really fun guy. And Marco, by the way, he went and he went to Sheffield of all places. He, he was born and raised in Sicily. And he, when he was sort of for a while, he left Sicily and he came to Sheffield and he didn't speak any English. 
So he, so he got a job at an Italian restaurant. And as he got in a job at an Italian restaurant, he had to learn a few phrases because then they made him a waiter. Poor guy didn't speak any English. And, and one of the phrases he had learned was, would you like some garlic bread to share? Which was great, except he didn't actually know completely what he was saying. So when some poor guy was sitting by himself, and Marco comes over and says, would you like some garlic bread to share? And the man turns and says, are you joining me for dinner? And of course, poor Marco had no idea what he was saying. You know, the bottom line is, is that you find pockets of people like yourself because, to be honest, there's a sense of home in that. You feel a lot more comfortable, especially if you don't speak the native tongue. It's like you give yourself a little bit of time off. And you're like, okay, I can breathe again. And let's talk about real sausage or let's talk about, you know, the things that we might talk about in a native tongue. Well, the reason I say that is, as Christians, we have the same experience. The only difference is that God has called us to be people who impact our community and not people who just blend in. But until we get to a place where we are actually able to assemble like this, we forget what our native tongue is, which, by the way, should be praise, not complaining. And we forget that there was actually a set of laws that we were born and raised with in our faith that we call the Bible, which tells us, by the way, of this beautiful God that we serve and his kingdom for which we represent because we're not just people that were kind of transplanted in here. We were inserted in here as ambassadors. We actually represent the country that, by the way, we are permanent residents of that we've really never been to. And that's called heaven, according to Philippians. And the world around us watches us and tries to decide whether heaven's a place they would want to visit or live. And they're going to watch us. And if we blend so much with the world around us, well, then it doesn't look like it's any different than any other place they've been. And somewhere in all of that, what happens is, is we just start to assimilate with our culture. There are certainly parts of it, you you know, it's just you learn how to ride the tube. You know, you kind of learn some of the phrases so you can communicate with people. That makes sense. But there are other things you want to steer clear of because you know they stand against your faith. But the moment you start adopting everything, you start to lose your, your homeland. And there's a part of you that kind of flips out a little bit because inside you're like, well, who in the world am I now? The reason I say that is Israel is so guilty of that. They have this tendency, even though they were called to to go into a land and claim it for their own, they started to go in and assimilate with people that God was punishing. And instead of their influence, they became people instead that just inserted and I, and I look at this, and, and by the time I get to the end of the chapter, I, I can't help but go, wow, God, make me more like David in this, at least in the end, certainly not in the middle. Now, consider this. Twice in the book of Numbers, God counted the people of Israel. But it wasn't a sin when God counted them. And do you know why? They were his. The difference between David counting the people and God counting the people is that God was counting the people and then listing them for us in numbers so that we could see what would happen as the people did really dumb things and how God responded to that. Why would David count his army? David would count his army because he really wanted to know how many people he could rest and relax because look at all the people that could protect him now. 
especially since David tried to go out to battle, to be honest. And they kind of went, whoa, 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 David, you're getting old now. David's 70. He's about to die. And he's just, and they're like, you know, why don't you let the leave the fighting to the young guys? And at this point, I think David's just counting his army to see whether or not he can really rely on it. And according to this, it says he has 1.3 million valiant men, right? Well, then I count this thing for what it's worth in the book of, uh, of Chronicles, and I realize it's actually a different number altogether. Uh, well, it's, it's just more people. And, and the reason I say that is it's one and a half million. Well, the reason is, or 1.6 million, because there were more people, but only this many were valiant. That's, I mean, in essence, you had other guys that picked up a sword and cut off their own finger with it. And they're like, well, they're in the army, but you really don't want this guy fighting. You, you should be polishing shoes. And the reason I say that is, is David's counting his army. And, but somewhere in it, David, and this is the important part, is that David knew it was wrong. And because David knew it was wrong and he acted on it, it was an act of, it was a, it was a sin of volition. Now understand, the book of Romans tells us to him who knows that something is wrong and chooses to do it, or to him who knows something is right and chooses not to do it, it's a sin. And it says whatever is outside of faith is a sin. In other words, if Siyoti is in a situ- situation where there's a part of his heart just doesn't seem right about it, and he's like, I don't know, is this a sin or is this not a sin? At that moment, what do you choose to do? If you choose at a moment like to go, well, I'm going to just go for it anyways. Chances are it's because you have somebody near you who is going, come on, just go for it. Come on, try it. You know, and there's a person who's like, I don't really know. Now, I'm not talking about it's a weird food and you're looking at it going, I'm not too sure this is even dead yet. Uh, well, that's, I mean, that's different. And by the way, I don't know if you'd be the first guy to say no to that. But, but there's a difference when you're like, I don't know, there's something in my spirit, not in my stomach, but in my spirit that goes, I'm not really sure if this is right or not. Do you risk it? What the Bible says is don't. Because if we really love the God we serve, we don't take chances with what could possibly hurt him. And that's what God says. If it's outside of your faith, it's sin. Could tennis be sin? For some people, yes. For some people, no. There's some people that I know any sport could be. I mean, card games can be a sin for them. You play Uno with them and you're like, oh, there goes the flesh. I mean, there's some people that are just so competitive. You're like, you know what? We should just watch something, you know. Then there are other people, they could do just about any of those things and it's not a problem. And the reason I say that is there are some things that are universally sin. Bible makes that clear. And there are other things that are individually so. And that's where we become a legalist is when our individual convictions become universal. And I say, well, this is my conviction. So everybody in the universe has to have that or they're not good Christians kind of thing. In this situation, we do read that David's heart condemned him. And what that tells me is that regardless of whether or not it could have been right under other circumstances, David knew this wasn't right and he did it anyways. That's the point. And we're trying to make a universal sin out of this, even though we say, well, God counted his people. But let's just say this. God could say that in every one of our lives too. There could be something in our life that we just know we just shouldn't be going there. A a personal conviction should keep you away from a weakness. For some people, they should never be near alcohol. And the reason is because one drink will never, what do they say? Uh, One drink is too many and a million's not enough. The idea is the moment you start, it's just downhill from there. And, and, And again, you can't lay that. There's some people, by the way, to be honest, if you eat a cheeseburger in front of them, they flip out. And, you know, it, traditional Jewish people, by the way, Messianic Jews, some of them, they can't have milk with meat. 
You know, or there are some people, obviously, that are Christian. I mean, that you can be a Christian vegetarian, but you don't have to be. Praise the Lord. Anyway, so the whole point of that is, is David's in this place where he has this thing where he knows he shouldn't do somehow in his heart, and he does it anyways. And again, David's kind of taking, I remind you, last chapter, David was taking inventory. Do you remember that? David, and again, it was like a few weeks ago, but David inventoried kind of where his family was and he took inventory of himself after all this time, but he only viewed himself in light of God's purpose. He viewed his own ministry, but only in the light of God's power. He inventoried his family, but only in the light of God's promises. And then he inventories some of his greatest friends. Remember, you've got these guys like Yesheb, uh, the Tachmanite, who, by the way, was a man of great faith. Remember, he killed 800 men at one time. And then it was Eliezer, the son of Dudu, the Ahohite, who, by the way, was a man, if you remember, who he fought until his hand was weary and he couldn't even let go of his own sword. He was a man of great follow-through. And then there was this man, Shema, and Shema, by the way, uh, the son of Agi, the Hararite, and he was a man of great faithfulness. He defended a bean field. And he's like, remember these great men. And David's inventory, he's getting old, and he's inventorying all of these people. And we get to the end of the chapter, the last chapter, and it was all of these people that were part of David's fighting men. And you kind of go, David just inventory, he's like, wow, look at all these friends I have and these people who have been so faithful to me and these men that are great men of valor. And that's great inventory. But then David turns from that and he starts inventorying things that aren't really his, they're God's. And at that point, you get the idea that God's going to say, I've got a problem with this. Do you remember this story for what it's worth? And again, this will pick up here in a moment. We're just kind of laying the ground rules for it. That there was a man, by the way, who tells us uh, that he was wealthy and he had so much stuff. So what does he do? He looks and he's like, you know, I have more stuff than I have places to put it. Luke twelve eighteen. Do you remember the, I mean, the story? And the reason I say that is, is of course, that could be our story, many of us. It's like our problem isn't that we don't have enough stuff. We don't even have enough room for the stuff we have. And the man says, I tell you what I'll do. I will pull down my barns and I'll build bigger, greater ones so I can store all my crops and my goods. And God said, fool, tonight you're done. I've counted your breaths and you've only got a few left. And where is all of this going to go when you're dead? You can't take it with you. And I get the idea here. We get to this place where we're so busy inventorying things that don't matter. We really are kind of unaware of the things that we have that really do. It's like we're taking stock take of the things we can't take with us. But we're really not asking ourselves, what about the things the Lord has given me that should be used right now? So Joab, by the way, he's not happy about this order. Neither are the other men. As a matter of fact, Chronicles tells us that Joab, the words of David here were, were abominable to, to Joab. He's like, I hate that David tells us to do this. So they go to all of these places uh, around the area of Jordan. Verse 5, Aurora, which means ruins. Yatserah, which means helped. They go from there to a place called Tatim Hadshi, which means the lowest moon, to a place called Dan Ya'an, which means the, basically, and I think it's an interesting name, judgment for purpose. And again, I think that it's important God listed this place. We have nowhere else in Scripture uh, than this event 
Because I think that's the whole point of this is that when God pronounces judgment, there's a purpose behind it. The same way that God doesn't spank his kids because he likes to spank his kids. But it tells us a loving father chastises his own, but it's always to correct dangerous and foolish behavior. So it goes all the way through all of this. From the, uh, what we have here, the 1.3 million valiant men to the 1.57 million uh, men that were in total. And then all of this is it was abominable, I think it's First Chronicles 21.6, to Joab, they do it anyways. And by verse 10, it tells us that David's heart condemned him. Now you're aware of the fact that we have a blessing that they didn't back then because with Jesus dying on the cross, we have the cross to go to, but it is also a danger because there's a part of us that becomes cavalier and goes, well, I can just blow it and then I can just ask for forgiveness, right? Well, I don't know how many of you have ever been in a serious relationship, but I can tell you this. That is the stupidest mindset you could ever have for somebody that you claim to love. It isn't like I'd be like, well, I could just do this. It's probably going to really hurt my wife. But hey, at the end of it, I'll be like, you're a Christian. You have to forgive me. Well, it damages a relationship to do those kind of things. And And it makes, from the outside, you look and you think, how do you claim to love somebody that you're so apathetic about possibly hurting? And yet we do it all the time with the Lord, and it just doesn't make sense to me. And David's heart here is condemned him, but we do know this. It tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, that if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. And if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. We do have forgiveness. But that forgiveness is not so that we can launch out into further sin. Romans 6 makes that clear. That would be stupid. We have the freedom to say no for the first time. And just sitting before we started, hearing testimonies of things that were struggles, that all of a sudden in one moment, God's like, you're done with that now. Because somewhere you're like, this just doesn't make sense. Why would I continue to do this? This is completely contrary to the freedom that God has ordained. And you know why? Because the world is still enslaved to it. So you think it's okay because you're comparing yourself with a world you're supposed to impact. Me too. Instead of going, you know, we should be radically different than that. We are the only spiritually alive people. We're not even talking about the spiritually healthy. We're the only spiritually alive people on the planet. Those people are existing, but they're not spiritually alive because that comes the moment you say yes to Jesus. How can I look like, I mean, it's it's like being the only living thing in the morgue. Do you really want to blend in, spread a little stink on you, try to put a little decay? Is that really a good idea? But then you're like, but then I'm going to stand out. That's why fellowship is so important because it's the one place where you realize you're not the only freak out there. We're all freaks out there, but together we're family, a family of freaks. Praise the Lord. So David says, look at, I've sinned. Well, what do I do now? Chronicles tells us, by the way, there was already an outbreak before this. And David kind of looks and he's like, whoa, this has consequence. But I want to remind you, who was God angry with at the beginning of 2 Samuel 24? Israel, not David. And the reason I say that is it isn't like David did something dumb and God just decided to kill a bunch of Israelites for it. God was already angry with Israel and there were people that needed to be dealt with. This circumstance just sort of gave platform for it. So David says, I've sinned greatly. 
And what I've done now, I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity for your servant. He's asking for forgiveness. David does know the power of forgiveness. We see that in his Psalms where he says, blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven, whose iniquity the Lord will never count against him. And so David rose in the morning and the word of the Lord came to a guy named Gad, according to verse 11. Now, Gad, for what it's worth, has already spoken to David in 1 Samuel 22 when David was fleeing from his son. Gad's already told him about that. And for for what it's worth, by the way, Gad wrote his own book. According to 1 Chronicles 29.29, it says, Now the acts of King David, first and last, indeed, they are written in the book of Samuel the seer, in the book of Nathan the prophet, and in the book of Gad the seer. So the guy knows how to write, and he wrote a book. We just don't have it. But if you want, when you get to heaven, you can ask God, Hey, can I take a look at Gad's book? So now God speaks to Gad, and he says, Gad, I I want you to go... And I want you to speak to David and say, give David three choices. Now, the choices are here, seven years of famine. You can flee from your enemies for three months. And I'm sure David would even like, the last thing I'm going to do is that. I've been there and done that twice. Or have three days of plague. According to 1 Chronicles 21.12, it tells us that it would be three days of the sword of the Lord. David then is speaking now to the prophet. Gad kind of comes in. Now, 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 I'd like you to consider the fact David is praying. Now, have you considered the fact how many times, can you think of a time where God directly spoke to David? God tends to use other people to speak to David, if you notice that. Be that Nathan, with the whole sort of, you know, entrapment parable, or a case like this with God. But then David's son, Solomon, on the other hand, God's going to speak directly to him on at least two occasions. He's like, Solomon, ask anything, whatever you want. I want to give it to you. You tell me what it is. And you'd say, well, why is that? And yet God loved David so much because God knows how to speak to you and he knows what way you'll listen. Have you ever seen someone in there like, you know, everywhere I was just asking God, where do I go? And then I like, all of a sudden something flashed on my iPhone and it said, go to China. And then I looked over here and there was a billboard that said, you should go to China. And so many Chinese came up to me and said, hey, aren't you going to China? And you kind of go, God never does that to me. Because for that person, that's what they needed. Now, there are others of us, it's sort of like you're praying and then you're like, oh, you know, but then the Lord just was impressing upon my heart. And for some of us, that's just like, well, that sounds so esoteric and you sound so spiritual. I'm sure like that happens. And you could be the one that got the billboard and the, all of that. And, and, and then you go, well, how come I never get any of that? Because to be honest, if God spoke that way to some in this room, we'd be like, is that really you? But you don't doubt it when a Chinese guy comes up to you and says, aren't you going to China? Now, the other person on a case, they're praying and the Lord speaks to their heart. They may, a guy coming from China, coming and speaking to them, they might be like, what was that? That was just weird. But in their prayer, they get, and the reason I say this, God knows how to speak to you. And the way that he speaks to you may be different than the way he speaks to me. But we can be confident of this. He always will speak to every one of us in his word. So we have something to test the other things by. So a guy comes over and starts saying, by the way, I think that you need to do this thing. And it's like, and you go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's completely against scripture. We could be confident that's not the Lord sending them. Or at least that that person is certainly not saying what they're supposed to. And the reason I say that is in a case like this, now think about how cool this would be though. David's just praying, God, I've really blown in will you please forgive me? And I know that you hear me. And all of a sudden it's like, come in. 
Hi, it's Gad. Hey, I just want you to know God's going to give you a few choices about this prayer. Think that through. How confirming would that be? Now, granted, it's not probably the response that David probably wanted at that moment. But I remind you, God is dealing with more than David here. God is dealing with Israel. And he's got some things he needs to work out there. So David is praying and God responds by sending somebody to answer that prayer. He says, but you're going to have to make a choice, David. And David's response is, I'm in great distress. Tzarar. Tzarar, by the way, means to be bound up or cramped. David's like, I just feel like I'm in a no-win situation. But I tell you what, if it's between falling into the hands of men or falling into the hands of God, no doubt the only place I would expect to find mercy is with the Lord. Please, let's not put man involved in this. And David does understand man is not naturally merciful. But it tells us this, one of the verses that has been tattooed on my foot, it tells us in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, and if you're the kind of memorizing type, I recommend you memorize these verses. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, and let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. God's like, you want to say you're awesome? You want to boast about one thing? You want to tell the world how awesome something is? Don't let it be something dumb that's temporary. Let the world know that you know me and that I'm a God who delights in making people right with me. I love doing that. And they need to know it. It's amazing. You'll brag about things that get in the way. Brag about this thing that gets them to me. So David says, look at God's mercy. Verse 15 so the Lord sent a plague. As the Lord sent a plague, by the way, 70,000 people will be the same amount of people, by the way, that Solomon will have carry burdens to be actually build the uh, temple in First Kings 5. The angel stretched out his hand to destroy it, and the Lord repented from the dis- relented from the destruction, said to the angel who was destroying the people as he was there at Jerusalem, now that's enough, stop. It's interesting, by the way, because this man, Arurana, uh, by the way, also was named Ornan in First Chronicles 21. Not uncommon for a person to have more than one name. By the way, for what it's worth, they both have a really important name to it. Uh, the, their names have important meaning. Arurana is the one we have here in Second Chron- Samuel, and his name literally means, because of this I will shout for joy. What a cool name. Versus the name Ornan, which, by the way, means this is how light bursts forth. Or literally, light has perpetuated. Interesting. This place where light bursts forth is the place for this I will shout for joy. And they now have met in the same person. Interesting. This angel now is swinging a sword. And as he's swinging the sword, people are dying. Now, it sounds like a pretty quick plague. It isn't like he's swinging to people like, oh... 
I don't feel so well. And then like three years later, they're dead. It sounds it's like they're like, oh, by the way, and they're done. You know, and, you know, there's a mercy in that too, I guess. But in that, it's interesting because Ornan's there. He's threshing on, the, on this flat plane. And as he's threshing on this flat plane, his sons are there. And it says that they all, David and these men, all look and see this angel swinging this sword. David freaks out. The, the, the man's sons all freak out, and this guy continues to thrash. Oh, or not, man, I don't know. Now, understand, you, 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 know, you took wheat when it grew, when it grew about this high, and you grabbed it, and you took a sickle, and you like that, and then you bound it up, so it was in a, what's called a sheave, and then you threw those bundles in a, in a sort of a, you know, kind of a cart, and then what you did is you took those things and you laid them all out on a flat plane and you ran over them in a sledge that usually had pieces of rock and metal or bone at the bottom of it so that it broke the light stuff, which is the straw, from the stuff you eat. But it's still all in the same place. Kids, by the way, often sat in that sledge to make it heavier so it would break it all up. <coughs> Excuse me. So then what you did is you took a thing like a pitchfork and you stuck it in there, and you threw it up in the air. But again, you need to be in an elevated, flat plane. Now, if you've ever been in those kind of places, they tend to be windy. So what happens is, as you throw it up, the wind blows all the light stuff away, and then what's heavy falls back down in front of you. Well, what's heavy is the part you eat. Isn't it nice for God to have actually made the, the heavier part the part you eat? Wouldn't it have been worse if the light part was the part you ate? You had to do all that, and then you had to run back down to the valley and pick it all back up. But here it was all in front of you, so you did this thing. So this is why you need a place that's elevated and flat. So you could do this, and then the wind would blow it away, and then what's left is, oh, that's the part we eat. And that's what they're doing at this moment, while the angel, on the other hand, is whacking people, and they kind of catch this, and everyone kind of flees except this guy. Now, with that, it says in verse 17 that David saw the Lord, and when he saw, I'm sorry, David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel striking the people. And David says, what in the world? Why are you killing them? Shouldn't this be me? Now, granted, I remind you, God is angry at Israel. But from David's perspective, it doesn't seem like David's aware of that. So what David sees, and what he has to learn is something we all have to learn, and that is nobody sins in a vacuum. It tells us, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. You reap what you sow. And you know this. I mean, the bottom line is, is if you want to do something horrible and stinky in your house, it's going to stink up the whole house. And sin tends to do that. Galatians 6, 7, and 8. It says, whoever sows of the flesh will reap corruption, but he who sows of the Spirit will reap everlasting life. And now we're almost done. So Gad said to David, all right, well, then I tell you what, let's take this place that's flat, clearly, and is elevated, and I want you to build an altar there. Erect an altar to the Lord on that threshing floor. So David did it, just like the Lord commanded him. But as David went to the man, and this is one of my favorite verses in Scripture because it's the one that nails me. David comes, and I remind you, he's the king. And kind of like here, he has the right of seizure. He can actually claim territory and just go, I officially declare this my territory. And then they're like, okay, have it, king. But this man is actually offering. 
So David comes and he's like, well, you know, the Lord told me I need to build an altar on this place. And the man, Arunah, says to him, hey, you know what? Just take it. Matter of fact, don't just take the land, but also take my oxen and use them as a sacrifice and take their carts and burn that for the wood. You've got, you know, it's, it's sort of like you've got a whole altar starter kit here. The only thing you need at this point is my permission and just take it. And David says, no. David says, I am not going to give to God that which cost me nothing. And I just want to ask, what has your Christianity cost you? How much of what we give God cost us nothing? I mean, we're afraid to give Him praise openly and outwardly because it just may somehow you just might get someone to look next to you and go are you going to sing that loud through this whole time I mean that's the worst I can tell you every time I read this there's a part of me that actually says God please forgive me because I feel like so much of my faith involves no sacrifice at all you know what's interesting do you know who seemed to have that right was Isaac Back in Genesis 22, when Abraham's going to offer his son, it's the first time in Scripture where you read the word translated as worship. And he says, the boy and I, or if you have the old King Jimmy, the lad and I will go yonder to worship. And they're walking up the hill. They're walking up a hill called Mount Moriah, or Mount Moriah. It's only listed twice in Scripture. Moriah or Moriah means chosen by God. And on the way up, it's a three-day journey. Three days is kind of important, as you're aware of as a Christian. And they're walking up, and Isaac is old enough to put two and two together. He's old enough, Steinman, Stein. He's old enough to connect some dots, and he's carrying the wood, and he says, Dad. Now I remind you, Dad said, we're going to go worship. That's what he said, we're going to go worship. And here he is carrying the wood, and he goes, Dad, We've got the fire and we've got the wood. But where's the sacrifice? I just wonder how much when I think of worship, it's like we've got the fire and we've got the materials. But where's the sacrifice? It's like Isaac figured that out. It's like you can't really call it worship without sacrifice, can you? Without the sacrifice, is this really worship? And what if God were to tell it? I mean, tonight, when we put our heads on our pillows, and look, I'm not here to condemn. Remember, God's greater than our hearts, even if our heart were to condemn us. But I'm here to ask myself, man, am I calling things worship that have no sacrifice at all? As if God were to say, hey, when you've got the fire, there's all kinds of passion coming out of you, and you've got the materials and all that stuff, but... Is there really a heart to sacrifice in this? Because David says, look, and I'm not going to give it to God. I'm not going to call this some great gift to God and, and give him that which is free. That doesn't make any sense. So he's going to pay 50 shekels. Ultimately, by the way, for what it's worth, he'll pay 600 shekels for the whole hill, but the threshing floor he buys for 50 shekels. By the way, then that came part and parcel with the ox and the wood as well. So I kind of did a little bit of a investigation, just so you know. 50 shekels is 567 grams. 
a little more than half a kilo or 20 ounces. Silver is roughly, for what it's worth, uh, roughly 48 pence to half a pound a gram or 15 pounds an ounce. So that means that he basically paid about 300 pounds for that threshing floor. When he buys the whole hill, again, it's 600, which means it's roughly about 3,600 pounds for the whole hill. David built an altar to the Lord there and offered the burnt offerings and peace offerings, so the Lord heeded the prayers and the plague was withdrawn. You know, what's interesting is that after David, his son's going to build the temple. We're aware of that. We've even spoken about that a little bit. For what it's worth, if you could, and we're going to close with this, would you turn in your Bibles? Remember, it's the Samuels and then the Kings and then the Chronicles. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 3 for a moment. David will build an altar here to the Lord, offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, call on the Lord, and he, the Lord will answer him from heaven, by the way, by fire on the altar, burnt offering. And the Lord will command the angel, and he returns his sword to his sheath. In Second Samuel, I'm sorry, Second Chronicles chapter 3, Solomon builds the temple. And I'd like you to look at the first verse to see where Solomon builds the temple. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on where? Mount Moriah, chosen by God, where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had appeared on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Yebushite. So this place, this threshing floor that David's standing at is going to be the site of the temple. But let me ask you, what took place before that at that site? Because it's only mentioned that Mount Moriah is only mentioned one other place. It was the place where Abraham offered Isaac. The same place where Abraham said, God will provide himself to be that lamb for our sacrifice. is the same place where God will send his son to be that lamb for our sacrifice. And he will, he will appear not just as Abraham promised, but where Abraham promised. And Jesus will die on that hill. Just as promised because my God knows exactly what he's doing. So, here, a couple millennia before this, Abraham offers up his son after a three-day journey goes to worship. First, and by the way, God also introduces the word love there, and they come back down. He's as good as dead, and now he comes back alive after a third day. And then what we have is we fast forward to here, a couple thousand years later, and we have David now, and the plague, God's wrath, is stopped at this place of peace and total sacrifice. Two offerings, burnt, which is a total sacrifice, and peace, which is to restore a relationship. Total sacrifice to restore a relationship. And you fast forward another thousand years from here, and the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, dies on a cross right at this spot, just as promised. God knows what he's doing. And here's my prayer is now as, as we move to the place, let's pray to close this. The most dumb event as David could look back at his life and go, what was I thinking to number the people? And the enemy prods David to do this. But look, at the enemy can't make you do it. He can only suggest it. You have to take it from there. 
And yet in all of that, God takes this same situation and prepares us a millennia later for the death of his own son, where the perfect, complete sacrifice was given, complete surrender to restore relationship, just as God had promised 2,000 years prior through Abraham when he said God will provide himself that sacrifice. Now as we pray, are we willing at whatever cost to worship God like he deserves to be worshipped? Or do we have a tight rein on what we think in things like time or effort or inconvenience and say, you know, that's a little too inconvenient and that's too much for me. I want to be somebody like David that says, I'm not going to give God that, which there's no sacrifice involved in that and call it worship. I want to give God everything. I want to be at that place where I want to die saying, God, you've got it all. Nothing's been withheld. Because clearly, that's how the father reacted when he sent his son. He withheld nothing to redeem me. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for this beautiful chapter. I thank you for the price you paid on this same hill, a place called chosen by you. You chose this place. And you introduced it to us in Genesis 22 said, I chose this place where a father gives his only begotten son. Your only son is what you say and offer him as a complete sacrifice, a a burnt offering, a complete and total sacrifice. And yet though you stay his hand, there is the promise that you yourself will step in to be that sacrifice. And then the next time I see the lamb, I see it in Exodus 12, where a firstborn dies and a lamb dies so that people could be set free out of the land of bondage. And then the next time I see the lamb, it is the lamb of a sin sacrifice in Leviticus. And then I look from there and realize that you say that he was led like a lamb in Isaiah. We all like sheep have gone astray and yet you have laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And I get it as Jesus as you step forth out of obscurity and, and John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God it takes away the sin of the world. I get it. And yet even at the end of it all in the book of Revelation, how when the elder says to John, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and yet John sees the lamb as if it had been slain. From one side of the cover to the other side, Jesus, you are the lion and the lamb. And you have given it all to pay for the sin of the world, all of mine included. Dying on that cross, on this promised hill, chosen by you. You built this hill to die on. And then to resurrect. As nearby you were buried. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, celebrating that sacrifice. And we want to call ourselves Christians, Christ-like people. God, don't let us be people sacrificeless in our hearts and somehow think we represent you accurately.
So tonight, we confess you, Jesus, as the sacrifice, the one sacrifice we need. And instead of counting all of our things, may we be willing to spend them in whatever way you wish for your glory. For all that we have should be yours at your disposal to bless and to bring others to you. So Lord, use us that way we pray. We give you ourselves. And we pray tonight. Impact London through us. Jesus, in your name. Amen.